felt like this strange combination of sounds. You have these kind of 808 beats, these low basses, and mixing those things together. I think there's something about the show and certainly about the family that feels like it's out of all proportion with itself. Everything's disproportionate. <laughs> you know, the, the bass is too big. The classical is, is too grand at times. But that's kind of the point. The family is fragmented. The family is off kilter with itself. Academy Award-nominated composer and pianist Nicholas Brittell is the musical brain behind the immersive scores of Barry Jenkins' Oscar-winning film Moonlight, If Bill Street Could Talk, and Adam McKay's Vice and The Big Short, all of which received wide critical acclaim. Most recently, his composition of the eerie title theme for the popular HBO series Succession cemented his name with a wider audience and earned him an Emmy for Outstanding Original Main Title Theme. Brittell's influence comes from all corners, from classical and jazz to hip-hop, in turn inspiring many musicians. The succession theme was recently remixed by rapper Pusha T. I'm Ben Ryland, and I'm delighted to say Nicholas Brittell joined me here in London on The Big Interview. Nicholas, it's such a pleasure to have you in the studio with me, especially knowing that you're a you're a Monocle fan and I'm a Nicholas Bratel fan, so that works well, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm really happy to be here. I am totally a Monocle fan. <laughs> <laughs> You've got quite an unusual job, I think it's fair to say. As far as I would describe it, I suppose you take the images and words of others and then you tailor-make a musical accompaniment that goes with that. Does it feel like an unusual job for you? It's funny. I think it feels very natural to me in some weird way. I think since I was really young, I spent a lot of time thinking about the emotions that music triggered in me in a way, you know, different harmonies, different shapes of melodies, kind of what that was doing, and which, by the way, is a total mystery. I don't think any of us really understand, but almost in a way of kind of cataloging the way that you respond to things. And I think that's actually what I spend a lot of my time doing now is, you know, trying to imagine for myself what I think somebody else is feeling and then trying to create music that that can evoke that feeling. So it seems, I think it seems more strange than it is, but maybe it's, maybe it is strange. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose one interesting aspect is that Music for a lot of people is quite specifically a non-visual medium by its nature, but your job is to, I suppose, make it into a, a visual medium. Does that mean, I mean, in some way, has music always been somewhat visual to you? Did you always find yourself imagining the sorts of things that would go with the sounds that you heard? I think that context always makes any art more powerful. I love music in a movie sometimes more than I even love it outside of the movie. You know, there's I think there is something really powerful about the combination of different art forms. And I think when we're in a movie theater, you know, the lights are dim. We're almost in this kind of hypnotic dream state, you know, like lights go down, lights start flashing in front of your eyes. We start hearing things. Yes. Yeah, so I do think there's something about the power of these combinations of sounds and images that allows for a very rich experience, which is richer sometimes than an art form just totally on its own. Now, that's not to say that music on its own isn't unbelievably powerful. It is. I think I've always just been drawn to, you know, you know, it's like that feeling when you're in a car and you're young and you put some headphones on and the scenery is going by and you're listening to music. It's a different experience than just listening maybe alone in your room. There's something about changing images that 
think our brains are just intrigued. I suppose in its crudest form, the idea of music, whether it's in movies or television or any sort of moving image, is to tell us how to feel in the most basic sense. For you, how would you how would you describe the purpose of the music that you create to go into then a movie or television program? The purpose really is to try to find a sound that feels like it's woven into the fabric of the film. And that sounds very abstract in some ways, but I think what we all are trying to do is kind of abstract, you know. It is this transmuting of feelings into sounds which will connect with images and I think the goal for me on a basic level is there is a sound for the film that the director is hoping for. You know, ideally, there's some sort of an idea that they want their film to feel a certain way. And the music goes part of the way to doing that. Obviously, some movies don't have music. You know, movies don't necessarily need music. But but music and picture, you know, have sort of grown up together as cinema has evolved, even from its earliest days. And... I think it's that hope for finding a sound that feels like what the director is looking for. And again, this is all very, I don't want it to seem so abstract, but in a way, it's sort of like a psychological journey that we go on together. You know, the director comes into my studio, sits on my couch, and I say, you know, what are you feeling? <laughs> you know, so there, it's, it, it's, a very, it's a very close collaboration. It's a very kind of intimate conversation, actually, because you have to go to that place of, of depth, and and thought and it's not obvious at all what the right sound is for a movie i think there are i've said this before i mean there's kind of infinite possible scores and the score that you create with the director is is the result of this very non-linear experimental process that even we aren't always aware of how certain things are coming together you know we sort of follow ideas and we say oh well what about this and depending on the film and depending on the director that takes you in different places how important is it to remain disciplined in the realm of what you've, or, or I suppose in the space that you've been given to create something for a project? I have heard it said before that a good score should almost be invisible, that it should form part of an overall expression and then it shouldn't stick out too much and live on its own. And I know the composer Philip Glass is someone who tends to get a lot of criticism for his work sticking out too much, although I personally love love his work. Do you find yourself having to remain somewhat disciplined that you don't get too carried away and start taking over the tapestry that's already been given to you? Well, it's definitely, I mean, it's sort of a ballet dance that's happening. You know, you're not, you're certainly not trying to jump out of the film, but it totally depends on the movie, you know? And also I would say just on a personal level, there are absolutely times where I'm watching a film and the music is coexisting in a very subconscious way and it's great. But there are also films where the music is completely popping out of the film and it's great if you think about a movie like the superman that john williams scored the music is way out there it is overt and it's awesome i don't think there's anybody who's like oh let's turn down the superman theme you know it's like no no i want that or if you think about james bond i remember when i was a kid and i would go see a james bond movie my little brother and i would we would just be waiting to hear the james bond theme (laughs) you know so so if i didn't hear the theme i would be very upset so i think it depends on the project and each project has its own Characteristics. There are absolutely films that I've scored where I was incredibly focused on making sure that the music was restrained and as subtle as possible. And then there are certain films where the director would actually encourage me, like Barry Jenkins on If Beale Street Could Talk, for example. There were certain places where when we were doing the final mix of the film, 
I would say to Barry, are you sure the music should be that high in the mix, you know? And he would say, actually, I think it should be louder. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know? So it's, I, I guess it goes a long way of saying that it is a conversation and there are no rules. I think the great disciplines like you're talking about or the restraints are in the nature of each film. Every film is its own set of constraints based on story, based on the characters, based on the aesthetic world. And you have to tailor your ideas to that. And that's actually incredibly liberating because you get this very specific window of things that you feel are right to choose from. So you know you can go very deep into this world. And sometimes that helps, like getting an assignment where they say, you know, this is what you get to figure out. And I, I love that. I think if they were like, we have just do whatever, I think I would just <laughs> flail around helplessly. <laughs> hey, you referenced what I think is one of the greatest musical scores ever, Superman. That was definitely the movie that made me love movies. It's an incredible score. Yeah. Brilliant. Just breathtaking entrance into the world of big screen cinema. Make no mistake, you are at the movies when you're watching that movie. Was there a particular moment? for you where you can trace back your interest in music and is there a moment where you can pick up and say that that's when music started meaning something more to me than perhaps most other people well i do have this kind of film music oriented origin story for me which is when i was five i saw chariots of fire and i was totally obsessed with the theme the vangelis music and we had this very old upright piano in our apartment on West End Avenue in New York. And um, I went over and tried to figure out how to play the theme. And I asked my mom for piano lessons. So for whatever the mystical reason that that was, that film and music were some of the first real things that I that I was inspired by, those early childhood experiences are mysteries, I guess. But but that was, that was probably the first time for me that film and music coexisted in that way. And it never felt strange to have this kind of focus on film and music. And, and of course, I, you know, I was a classical pianist. For a long time, I considered being a concert pianist as a career path. But film music, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, there's something about that experience of being in a theater and hearing music and being immersed in a story that just always drew me in. Well, that takes us into a bit of a, an interesting offshoot to your interest in music, because I understand that you are, of course, trained in classical music, but you somehow found your way to a hip-hop group while you were studying at Harvard. The Witness Protection Program, yeah, I believe yeah. it was called. Exactly. Please tell us how <laughs> this upbringing of classical music turned into hip-hop. I always loved hip-hop as well. I studied classical through high school. I started learning jazz when I was about 14 or 15, I guess. And I was born in 1980, so I was 13 years old in 1993, right at that beginning of the golden age of sort of 90s hip-hop. And I loved hip-hop, love hip-hop. And after my freshman year, I took a year off from college to give concerts and see if I wanted to be a classical pianist, because I was kind of trying to figure that out for myself. And I did a lot of things that year. I was a cocktail pianist in hotels and bars and, you know, did a lot of things. But then on my year off, I had this idea that I really wanted to join a band when I got back to college. And just serendipitously, when I came back to school, some good friends of mine starting to put the beginnings of this hip-hop band together. We called ourselves the Witness Protection Program, the WPP. <laughs> and it was a live instrumental hip-hop band, so we had two rappers and then six musicians. I was on keys and synthesizers, and I wrote a lot of the tracks. And then there was electric guitar, electric bass, live drums. We had a conga player. And then we also uh, had a DJ. So we were kind of like a 
carnival on a stage, you know. Uh, but it was it was great, and I spent almost all of college just focused on that. We were very serious. We played all over the Northeast, played a lot of colleges, clubs, and actually got into a real rhythm with it where. Every day I was writing hip-hop beats and tracks for like four or five hours a day for years. It was a real obsession of mine. And at the exact same time as I was doing that, a very dear friend of mine, Nick Lavelle, who tragically passed away a few years ago, is an amazing director, and he was making his first feature film at the same time. So at the exact moment when I was in this hip-hop band making all these tracks, this close friend of mine started directing his first movie, And he said, do you want to score this movie? So I started writing what became about like three hours of orchestral music for this film. So there was this sort of confluence of events where I was writing music nonstop. And I think growing up, I always thought about composers, maybe in the way of, you know, especially if you grew up with classical music, the composing figures of history are these larger than life characters. And you sort of never think of yourself as a composer, I think, or at least I didn't, because, you know, if... Mozart or Beethoven are composers. I'm definitely not a composer. You know, what am I? I'm, you know, I'm learning to play the piano. I'm, I love music, but I can't be a composer. But it was really in college that I, I was just writing music all the time. And I started thinking to myself, does this make me a composer if I'm writing music all the time? So it's just interesting, I think, the way that we frame these things for ourselves. And I ended up just following this passion. It, I, was, I was never happier than when I was writing music and working with friends. And that sort of collaborative artistic environment was something that I just felt so drawn to, whether it was in the band or whether it was in scoring. And so I, yeah, that's a long way of saying that, yes, I was in hip hop band in college. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I hear that and I wonder, how does that work? I mean, my limited knowledge of hip hop suggests that it is actually quite different to classical music. How do these worlds live together? They seem like strange bedfellows. Do they actually seem like more obvious bedfellows when you look at them with a musical mind? Hip-hop is an incredible art form. I actually think hip-hop is the most powerful new, let's say, new form of of music in the past 50 years. And it's really something fascinating because hip-hop is, I think it's the first time in, I don't even know when in history, there was this time where you had a rhythmic bed of music where on top of it was essentially poetry. I mean, rapping is such a virtuosic art at the highest levels. And I think it's so inspiring that that new form which has become so normal to us now but it's really amazing the way that you have poetry you have these incredible beats and then on top of that it's a musical form that is actually constantly about other music the origins of hip-hop was sampling and you know digging for records and finding you know elements of it and taking those records and bring them into new recordings i think that sort of referential process of music is pretty amazing and I've actually discovered so much music by hearing a hip-hop track and saying, what's that What's that jazz track? <laughs> and then realizing it's this amazing other recording, too. So there's kind of like a whole history of music that you hear through a particular hip-hop track oftentimes. So I think that, you know, classical music itself, for me, was just a wonderful training, in a way. I think learning about classical music isn't necessarily about specific styles. It's really about just thinking about music very closely, thinking about harmony, thinking about counterpoint, thinking about rhythm, and trying to understand it. And I think that's just an amazing education that you can then bring to any any form, you know, whether it's jazz or whether it's reggae or hip-hop or Broadway musicals, what have you. I think it's just sort of a way of thinking about music. Your work on the HBO series Succession features plenty of piano and dramatic strings 
There's also this sideline where the character of Kendall Roy fancies himself as a bit of a hip-hop aficionado, to put it politely. Uh, is that a coincidence, that those two mixes just happen to be in this program and that you happen to work on it as well? It actually is a coincidence. I mean, it was a happy coincidence because, you know, when I, I was able to go, I was in New York at the time when they were shooting the pilot for Succession for season one. And right away from the beginning of the show, you see Kendall rapping <laughs> to himself. <laughs> and early on, I met with Jesse Armstrong. Adam McKay had brought me onto the project because we'd worked together on The Big Short. And when they were making the pilot, I invited Jesse over to my studio and started playing him some early ideas and sketches and things to see what resonated for him. And it was this interesting combination of kind of a dark, courtly, classical zone of music, but combined with some very strange sounds like detuned pianos and bells. And then it definitely, the, the Kendall rapping was a piece of my uh, my early thoughts. And it felt like this strange combination of sounds you know you have these kind of 808 beats these low basses and mixing those things together i think there's something about the show and certainly about the family that feels like it's out of all proportion with itself everything's disproportionate <laughs> you know the the bass is too big the the classical is is too grand at times but that's kind of the point the family is fragmented the family is off kilter with itself and it was really important, I think, to try to um, balance different elements of the tone. Because on the one hand, you have this absurd, kind of absurdist comedy that's happening. And then on the other hand, you have this deep gravitas in the show because it's actually quite serious. It's about, you know, these ever-increasing concentrations of wealth and power and smaller and smaller groups of people, and specifically in the show about the media industry and a media family. So there's this seriousness of what's going on. And yet it's ridiculous at times. So how do you balance those things? And some of these different elements were maybe interesting early ways of trying to do that. The the power of the music, of course, means that if there is a, a scene taking place that is perhaps played for comedy or maybe it's played seriously but ends up being comedy, the music ends up being a very important part of how the audience is reading what's going on. And Succession is a really interesting example of that because there are so many sequences that you go into it as a viewer not knowing whether you're supposed to be laughing or crying or, or scared. And perhaps you might be, well, for me, I'm all three all at once most of the time. <laughs> And and honestly, that's the point, I think. And for my approach, we don't want to give things away. And one of the things that Succession does, I think, so well is there are all these moments that are kind of just deliciously cringeworthy. <laughs> and figuring out the way to have the music function in those moments, one of the things that I would often do when thinking about the comedy first was talk closely with Jesse Armstrong because he has an amazing instinct for even just like where a piece of music should stop. Because there are times, you know, I never want the music to step on the toes of the comedy. I mean, that's one of my my deepest fears. <laughs> and actually, as you were saying earlier with the question of the music being woven in or not being noticed in certain places, whenever it comes to the comedy, I definitely don't want the music to, you know, get in the way. I feel really strongly about that. But what I found was that if I wanted to have the comedy be underlined, the way to do it was actually to make the music much more serious, 
which at first to me was kind of counterintuitive, but then it became very obvious almost that music that sounds funny is actually kind of not funny. It, it, it feels like you're trying to make somebody laugh and it's actually pretty dorky. <laughs> Whereas if the music is even more serious, there's this huge differential between what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And that's actually funny. I want to move along to your latest project, The King. It's a Shakespeare adaptation that's both lavish and bleak in quite different ways, though, it must be said. I think it's fair to say we don't really get as many of these historical epics as we used to at another point in time, yet there is still this expectation of how a film like this should look, how it should feel and, and how it should sound, of course. How did you deal with that kind of expectation, the knowledge that maybe a lot of people who have seen a poster for this might come in expecting to hear this big Ben-Hur-style commanding soundtrack? It's interesting. I've not scored a film like this before, and I always try to do different things. I really hope that every project can be its own new challenge. And I first saw the film actually early this year, and it was totally blank, no music at all, no ideas, nothing. And it felt like a really amazing canvas to work with. And my first instinct actually was, you know, looking at this early 1400 story and imagining what would what would it sound like if this was actually the 25th century and it's sort of maybe seems like a random question but like what's the 25th century look like we don't really know maybe the 25th century looks like the 15th century <laughs> we don't know where we're going you know and and at the same time too i think one thing that struck me in this particular film is that it is set in the early 1400s but the themes of the film and what it is sort of saying in subtext are about ideas that are every generation's questions. You know, it's about intellectual fraud. It's about questions of to whom do we entrust power, you know, power of the state, power of the nation. And it felt like there are certainly resonances with today. So I, I think me, but also David, very particularly David Michaud, we had this conversation of not wanting it to feel like it was just about 1413 in England. And I actually did a huge amount of research into late medieval and early Renaissance music. I went down this real rabbit hole with it. And interestingly, you know, it was good to sort of know what the music was at that time as best as we're able to sort of understand it, but also to understand like what not to do maybe to some extent. So there was a lot of thought that went into that. But at the same time, I think we wanted it to feel like kind of a foreign planet. I think we wanted it to feel like, I mean, none of us really know what the 1400s were like. And I think sometimes when we see films, there are a set of conventions that we get used to of, oh, I guess this is like you were saying, you know, is a sort of like a Ben-Hur kind of feeling. But that is also just, you know, that's like a mid 20th century idea of what the past looked like. So we wanted it to feel a bit of like a, a foreign planet. And I initially made these sounds kind of of these sort of bass clarinets that were run through these tape filters that created this very strange, almost like human voice sound, but not. It felt organic, but undefinable. And then I took these kind of metallic sounds and would distort them around a bit. And that created this interesting kind of clangy percussion. And yet at the same time, there was a sound of a string orchestra that felt connected to the story and that I think for us felt a bit timeless, hopefully. It felt like it could be any era with the strings, and particularly the low strings. It was violins, violas, cello, and basses, but they were the orchestration is skewed towards the lower strings, so it's a bit of a deeper, darker sound to some extent. And 
we also worked with a boys choir um, and we recorded all the music here in London, worked with the Trinity Boys Choir. And the boys choir really enters in the portion of the story when they're arriving in France so that the sound of this kind of almost like spiritual boys choir takes us on that journey. And it felt symbolically and, and musically resonant with this story of a young man who is becoming king. Mm. You referenced the word timelessness there, and that struck me with the music in the film as well, because often I wonder, is the music supposed to be timeless? Because often, if you watch a film, it's the music that will often give you the most obvious cue as to when in time this film was. You can have a historical drama released in the 1950s, and the music might still tell you, oh, this kind of feels a bit 50s here. Mm. But sometimes you do want that. If you watch Tron, you kind of want it to sound a little bit corny 80s, don't you? But then other films will go out of their way to try and sound like they're in any point in time. Uh, To reference another superhero, Batman Returns, I think, is a, a very cleverly done film where you can watch that now and have no idea when this is taking place. There are no clues anywhere. What's the marker of success for you? Is it important for something to sound of its time and to have the freedom to revel in whatever the influences are of this moment? Or do you aim for something to have eternal relevance? Again, you know, I think a lot of it comes back to each project on its own. Some projects, I think you want things to feel very, very linked with what you're seeing. And some projects you actually want to zoom out maybe in a way. I don't think there's really a right answer to it. And like I was kind of implying a little before, each of these films and projects is an experiment. We don't know, and I I talk about this a lot with Barry Jenkins, you know, when we're starting to work on something, just as an example, we have no idea where we're going to wind up. We start with a set of early ideas, maybe this, maybe this, and then we sort of let the movie tell us things and we learn from the movie you know you put things up against picture and it tells you something and you say oh actually that's that feels this way but that's not right at all and i think if something ends up feeling i mean timelessness is such a big word (laughs) but you know if things feel like they can last over time i mean i think that's magical and that's amazing but it's not the i think the goal is actually much more micro you know the goal is i'm just trying to find sounds that feel right for the director and that feel right for me in turn and that hopefully feel like they link with the story. Just before we wrap up, I do want to get your thoughts on the wider industry at the present moment because you are, of course, the very clever mind behind this brilliant opening sequence to Succession, which it seems everyone I know is talking about this. I was chatting to a colleague who said he's got it saved on his phone so he can have it at the ready in case oh, he needs to consume <laughs> it at any I'm given honored, moment. I'm honoured. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about it, this the opening sequence of a series, it's often it often becomes a key signpost in that show's legacy long after, often long after the series has ended as well. And I, I was thinking about the classic animated sequences of sitcoms of the 1960s, Bewitched mm. being the most obvious example. There's mm. the, the midnight swimming in the fountain in Friends or even the uh, spinning hourglass with the gravelly voiceover of Days of Our Lives. You know, these are the very, very different <laughs> projects, but they're, even if you don't watch the show, you probably know about those opening sequences. But even though there's a lot of television at the moment, in the words of one heavyweight executive, too much television, apparently, uh, it does seem that the opening sequence of a lot of television series is something that's being chopped off. Maybe it's the age of binge-watching. We're just sick of it. Often it's, it's disappearing completely. I mean, what are your thoughts on the opening sequence? Is it something that we need 
I'm biased, obviously, but I I think opening sequences of television are an art form. (laughs) When I was a kid, I was completely obsessed with TV themes. I thought they were the greatest thing ever. And whether it was MacGyver or Matlock or Golden Girls or what have you, I mean, they just felt so iconic. And my little brother and I were so into this. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I mean, for me, I think they also, you know, you were talking about things linking with a particular time. I mean, when I hear any of those TV themes, immediately I'm back in our apartment in New York, 1987 or something like that. So, <laughs> you know, I think they're beautiful. I think TV openings are a, a beautiful thing. And I think there are lots of reasons why things change over time. I mean, I don't even know if it's a constant the way they change. I think it can be a bit cyclical. I think there are times where opening sequences and themes are more present in times where maybe there's a you know a reaction against that i think technology changes that too um, you know the ways in which we go from one episode to another like you were saying in binge watching but i think i think there is something to be said for certain forms of media and i love the formal structure of uh, of the opening title sequence so <laughs> do you have a favorite you know some of the ones i mentioned were my favorites i mean it's hard to it's hard to say which of those is my favorite i mean night riders a great theme too that's a classic but yeah all of the above those were those were some of the classics <laughs> <laughs> nicholas that was great thank you very much thanks My thanks to Nicholas Brittell. The King, featuring Brittell's musical score, is out now on Netflix. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Yolene Goffan. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.